I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's Linda Carducci, and we're diving into the life and music of Sergei Rachmaninoff. There is a lot to uncover, like how early influences stayed with him his entire career, why he immigrated to the United States, and of course, characteristics of his music. Plus, we'll hear actual recordings of Rachmaninoff himself at the piano. And stay with us to the end as we read your reviews from Apple Podcasts. When I think of Rachmaninoff, Linda, I think of those long, drawn-out melodies and rich, almost nostalgic-sounding harmonies, too. But after listening to a lot of Rachmaninoff recently, I forgot how film score-like his music was before we even had films at this point. Maybe it was just that Russian storytelling quality. Yes, long melodic lines, storytelling in music, and big chords. Uh, but you're talking about the, um, the scores for music. Of course, you know, sometimes they would borrow from sounds like Rachmaninoff. Oh, yeah. And there were many years when, when people maybe didn't consider Rachmaninoff an A-list composer because they thought, well, he sort of sounds overly romantic and almost like film scores. But Mm -hmm. when you dig a little deeper, you can see that there is a wonderful innovation going on in his music. Definitely. And there's a little bit of trivia that I can kind of already just tease a little bit about Rachmaninoff. And that is the question, where was his final concert? The location is not something you would think of right away for this big Russian composer, but we'll answer that as we go along towards the end of the podcast. Rachmaninoff, a tremendous influence on uh, composers, musicians, especially pianists, as we'll hear. He was born April 1st, 1873, the young Sergei Vasilievich Rachmaninoff, born into aristocracy, wasn't he? A musical family, started piano early at age four, but shortly after here, his father totally mismanaged the whole family's finances and estates. Yes, he didn't have a strong relationship with his father. He did with his mother, though, and his aunt and his grandmother. And his grandmother made a very important impression on him. She would take him to Russian Orthodox church services. And it was there that this very young Sergei would hear this music that would be coming out of these church services. Liturgical chants, church bells... And maybe that's, too, where he first became exposed to the Dies Irae chant, the little medieval chant that he would use in some of his later compositions. Oh, definitely. And like so many composers, they're exposed to something when they're young, and it kind of just takes them through or is part of their career in some way as they compose and write music for the rest of their life. He was, of course, talented, but worked very hard taking lessons, practicing the piano, His parents ended up splitting up, of course, with um, the father's um, mismanagement of estates and and money. But he, at age 10 years old, I think he he was 10, when he first got a scholarship to the St. Petersburg Conservatory. And it was there he discovered pretty quickly, I think he said, quote, you know, I must become a composer. Yes, and and he did have a talent for playing piano, but um, there are some stories that maybe he wasn't the most diligent student. While he was at the St. Petersburg um, Conservatory, he was he had failed his general studies there. Oh. People noticed that he had talent at piano, but maybe he was just not living up as to his potential. And he uh, he had a relative, I believe it was a cousin of his mother, maybe or his grandmother, who was a famous pianist and was with the uh, Moscow Conservatory, and so recommended that young Sergei 
now go to the Moscow Conservatory to finish his studies there because there was a notoriously strict professor of piano there. And maybe that extra discipline is what little Sergei needed. Yes, I think you're talking about his name was Nikolai Zverev. Um, yes, yes. And his his relative was uh, Siloti, by the name of Siloti, S-I-L-O-T-I. Mm-hmm. But the professor at uh, the Moscow Conservatory that you're talking about, who was notoriously strict, was Nikolai Zverev. Okay. And we'll mention him again in just a moment. And this is also at the same time, right, I guess, with his aunt and uncle as he's spending time in Moscow at the conservatory. He first visits this private country estate of the family Ivanovka. And this is where he had a a huge influence or kind of introduction to a lot of folk music, too, I think, in the area, kind of following along with the influences that he would get from the Orthodox Church as well. Yes, and this all played into his um, fascination with composing his own music that was based on all of these wonderful influences that he was hearing. Yeah, certainly he was a talented pianist, but he had this drive to compose. And when he's in Moscow at the conservatory, you mentioned how strict this teacher Zverev was. I guess he was also living with him, too, which maybe that was a thing um, at the time. But he was very upset with Rachmaninoff because Rachmaninoff was wanting now to really study composition in addition to playing piano. But, of course, Zverev is thinking, no, you really can't do that. You need to focus on piano. I believe he even stopped talking to him completely. And this is something that not to this level, but happens in conservatories today. It's usually out of good interest for on the teacher, for the student, in that they don't want them to, to be distracted with something else besides their principal instrument or study, whether it's piano or a string player wanting only to focus on chamber music as opposed to their orchestra classes, things like that. But this was pretty extreme, not talking to him at all after he just kept composing. Yes, and as you say, Zverev was looking out for this young man, his teenager's best interests, maybe thinking that, well, you know, there's a little bit of a risk in becoming a composer and making a living at that. But if you were a great pianist, just think you can tour all over the world and play all of the great piano um, music. And Zverev was very strict with him, too. He used to get him up at 6 o'clock in the morning, every morning, to practice and work and work and work. And it was this behavior, this this discipline that is thought that uh, led to Sergei Rachmaninoff being a wonderful pianist. So it sounds like although Zverev was pretty strict, it was helpful in Rachmaninoff in keeping him um, focused. And as a composer, he also writes at this time a hugely successful work. His first opera, right? It's a one-act opera, Aleko. He thought it would fail completely. He didn't have any hope in it. But at the premiere, Tchaikovsky was there. It was a huge success. He got the highest mark in the conservatory, won a prestigious award. And now that strict teacher, Zverev, who would not talk to him, he gives Rachmaninoff his gold watch. <laughs> yes, that shows that shows what, what what a great work can do, or at least the potential of it. You know, Tchaikovsky took notice of of this work that you talk about that uh, Rachmaninoff wrote, and Rachmaninoff revered Tchaikovsky. He grew up listening to his music, so this was a wonderful boost for the teenage Rachmaninoff. And yes, it's Rachmaninoff. He's a great composer. We know that, but it's still a little unusual to have someone like Rachmaninoff write in this Aleko such a command, he has such command over orchestration, harmonies, color, over everything. It's like, I mean, this is a pretty huge work to kind of debut yourself with. It is thought that he had a great command of counterpoint, Mm -hmm. uh, of harmony, 
these were things that he was interested in and obviously had a great talent in. And soon after, he graduates from the conservatory, and that's when he writes another work that ends up being basically, I think, his most popular, right, for the rest of his life. And that is, it's a, from a set of preludes, but it's prelude in C-sharp minor. We hear such great influences, I think, of, I, th- I hear Mazorsky, I hear Rimsky-Korsakov in this opening. It's this Russian sound. Sounds kind of like church bells, although Rachmaninoff may have said, you know, that's not what it was at all. But this was so popular, he had to play it at his concerts until he died, and he got kind of sick of it. <laughs> you mentioned church bells. That's yeah. exactly what I hear with the mm-hmm. prelude in C-sharp minor and the beginning, of course, of the piano concerto number two. I mean, that's obvious bells. But yeah, you know, growing up, he would go to the church services with his grandmother and hear these church bells and hear the chant. But we hear this, um, shall we say, a, a thought of bells, a mm-hmm. memory of bells in the music and this prelude in C-sharp minor which was an early work of his opens up with these large chords that are very um, similar in rhythm they're, they're all the, pretty much the same rhythm that evokes a church church bell you know and, and I think that there are many composers who will say well they wrote something maybe um, you know earlier in their career or maybe middle career that they didn't really think was that great of a work and it gained so much popularity that sometimes the rest of their life they kind of shake their head and scratch their head and wonder why this is so popular. Ravel's Bolero is a great example. Yes. Rachmaninoff said, you know, I wasn't really thinking about bells. He said that later. I think you're exactly right with that. My uneducated opinion and guess here, if I have to make one, is that that was just him kind of displaying a little bit of control over the piece, maybe, you know, having a go at it because it definitely sounds like bells. Mm -hmm. And I think he was just annoyed that it became so popular. (laughs) It was his way of having some fun, even though he had to play it. That's right. To his credit, he wrote it, went on to write uh, quite a number of of preludes for solo piano. Yes. Another work at this time, absolutely beautiful, the trio elegiac uh, number one. He's only 18 years old still when we're hearing this. And this is when I think we really start to hear these long, stretching melodies We can hear how Rachmaninoff is already doing that. Melodies, and we're saying long and stretched out. Of course, a lot of melodies are long and stretched out. But with Rachmaninoff, he's using at times as few notes as possible. And he's just letting them sustain. But they're still moving forward in a way that a lot of composers, I think, just would not be able to do. A long, sustained melodic line. And he was able to do that even in piano, too. It's difficult to do that in piano because the, the sound decays and you can't sustain it. Well, you can sustain a little bit with the pedal, sustaining pedal, but um, it's difficult to play sustaining uh, lines in, in piano. Easier to do it with, with violin or a wind instrument. You know, he was only 20 years old when he wrote that, and he wrote it um, with thoughts of Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky had just died, and it, it stunned uh, the young Sergei Rachmaninoff, and so he wrote that. Uh, in thoughts of the death of Tchaikovsky. And this is something that I always forget. Rachmaninoff, of course, lived into the 1940s, but he was 20 years old in the 18, late 1800s when Tchaikovsky died. I don't think of people being alive in World War II having also been alive for Tchaikovsky. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And also, uh, Rachmaninoff spent his formative years um, during the Russian Empire. So it was it was not the type of government that that, be, that it became ultimately. So there was a, a very different um, sense of his life from, say, 30 younger to when the Russian Revolution happened and then going forward. 
Now, we've already heard a little bit of his early style and characteristics that prelude the trio. Looking at orchestra now, um, shortly after this point in his early 20s, he writes this symphonic poem called The Rock, or, or sometimes The Crag. It's a, it's a beautiful work, and we can hear how he's just already has a command of just giving us this glittering, um, sweeping, um, very richly textured sound. He's a great pianist, and we know that, but it's so amazing to hear someone being such a great pianist but also have such command at this time over the orchestra. Yes, and it's a transparency. Do you notice? There's, it's not overcrowded. He has mm-hmm. the exact perfect balance. So there's transparency. There's some shimmering there. He knows which instruments would create the exact sound he wants. It, it really is something that, that, that he heard in his, in his brain. And, of course, this was um, taken from years of, of listening to, to music, and not just piano music, but from all of his life. And later in the work, he's able to do almost the opposite, have at the right time, very thick, very heavy, and a huge sound. He's able to balance all of this stuff already in his early 20s and already after being having kind of a blow with his huge hero's death just um, a year or two before. Now, this is kind of where I think of his career in two parts. Part one, what we can kind of think of now as he's in his 20s and he's growing into it. And he had a good start with the opera and the trio and the symphonic poem we just heard. But things went pretty downhill after Tchaikovsky's death when he lost a big contract with a theater for his music. He had to go back to teaching private piano lessons. And in 1897, it went very poorly, didn't it, when he had his Symphony No. 1 premiered. Yes, um, it was a work that, again, was based on the chants that he had heard in the Russian uh, Orthodox Church services. He was a young man at this point and was putting together all of these sounds that he had heard growing up and his thorough knowledge of Tchaikovsky. He put together this Symphony Number no. 1, and it was presented as part of a, a concert series for young Russian composers. So we would have every reason to believe that this young Sergei Rachmaninoff was very confident of this work. Yeah. But the premiere was an absolute disaster. I mean, in almost every sense of the word. And I, a lot of the blame lies with the conductor and, and great composer, too, Alexander Glazunov. He was he had a drinking problem, and people were saying he was drunk in the concert. He was drunk in the rehearsals. And a main conductor's job is time management in rehearsals. That's the biggest thing that they do. They need to make sure that all the time is used to rehearse everything that needs to be rehearsed, all of the transitions, all of the difficult parts, and this is a difficult symphony. None of that really happened. And Rachmaninoff, even in the rehearsals, thought, wow, this is going to be a disaster. And at the premiere, they couldn't play together. It was a mess. Critics ripped it apart. Rachmaninoff didn't even stay during the concert. He left like halfway through his symphony and just ran out of the hall. It was said that he said that at that moment he, that he wasn't affected by its lack of success. Mm-hmm. He wasn't affected by its critical disapproval. He, it was said that he thought him, to himself that maybe the work wasn't as good as he thought it was. I've seen that too. I mean, it's I've, I definitely 
agree with that. There's part of me that thinks we hear the symphony today. It was never played in the rest of his lifetime, but we do hear it today. It is recorded. It is interesting. There's so much great textures. The opening of each movement is almost the same rhythm. It's a nice um, kind of contextual thing that carries itself throughout. But it's just a shame. I think if it went better, he would have would have liked it. A lot of Russian composers, also Tchaikovsky, would hate the symphony when it was premiered, and then a year later would love it. Rachmaninoff never even got that chance. As you say, it has very interesting textures to it. I, I agree with that, too. And we can look at it now and listen to it differently than the original uh, audience did during the premiere because we're hearing now professional uh, performances of this, Mm -hmm. well-rehearsed performances of it. But it does have wonderful texture to it. But Rachmaninoff, like Tchaikovsky, was self-critical. Yes. And he could get down on himself and depressed if he felt that maybe he wasn't um, working well, if things weren't working well for him. Depression is the word here because for three years, he went into a pretty deep depression, stopped composing... I'm not sure he was really playing or keeping up with playing as he should have been. He was still playing, but maybe not as much as he should have been doing. No composing at all. It was very, very dark period for himself. And then thankfully in 1900, in his later 20s now, he starts going to therapy. And after many, many, many months of therapy, he starts to compose again. And then his first work he completes shortly thereafter, his second piano concerto dedicates it to his therapist. And it's an absolute comeback work, isn't it? A masterpiece. Yes. Can you imagine? So maybe a psychologist would tell you that in all those three years where he was sort of hibernating, if you will, and secluding himself and in depression, there there were ideas still stirring in his brain. He was still maybe working. His, His brain was working on putting things together. And so maybe somehow his doctor, Dr. Dahl, was able to unlock some of that that was that was there, get him past this block that he had of being self-critical and down on himself. And they finally emerged into a masterpiece, his piano concerto number two. It's, I mean, the opening is beautiful. It's so Russian sounding as well. And just this sweeping background with a melody just floating over top. I mean, it's just an absolute comeback work. Thankfully, one that went very, very well and kind of catapulted him back into the light. Now... He also gets married at this time, too, and he gets married to his cousin, Natalia Satina, I think is how we say her name. And even in 1902, this was not looked well upon. Uh, The church didn't like it. The family didn't like it. It wasn't that accepted by the society in his inner circle that he would marry his cousin, but... They did get married. He wrote a bunch of songs to to pay for the wedding, too, I think, and pay for the priest. And that countryside estate, Ivanovka, that we mentioned before where he first visited, the family gave them two small houses on this estate. And this is basically where he would come back to for many, many summers, um, kind of relax and compose. Rachmaninoff had to compose in almost isolation. He has said that he would be distracted easily and that that would disrupt his writing process. Mm -hmm. So he needed total seclusion. And this estate, a country estate, where there's not much going on and it's a a rural estate, was a perfect uh, environment for him. And the discipline that he learned from his schooling years pays off because you're saying he needs to be so focused on one thing at a time. We think of Bernstein in an episode we just talked about. Bernstein was stretched paper thin doing everything at once, and he was frustrated by that at times. Rachmaninoff is conservative in his, in his approach 
I'm composing now and that's all I'm doing. Or I'm performing now and touring and that's all I'm doing. He was able to really sit down and do that, which is why I think we have, he had the career he had. But we start to see something in him that I think carries him through the rest of his life. And that is he gets this job to be a conductor at the Bolshoi Theater in 1904. He's like 31. After two seasons, he quits. He becomes disillusioned with the job even after one year. He resigns the following year because of the unrest around the revolutions at the time, and it was affecting the actual staff of the theater. But what what I'm saying is we start to see him be a kind of wanderer. And I forgot about this with Rachmaninoff. He rarely stays in one place for a long time after this. He's going from one estate to compose to somewhere else. I'm going to go here and rest. I'm going to go here and compose. I'm going to go here and perform. He was just kind of a wanderer at that point. Yeah, I think there was a period of transition. Um, When he became married now and he was settling in and and he was on this estate, and he considered this maybe his home. But as you say, he was starting now to to work a little bit. Um, They they took a tour of Italy with he and his family, and they started wandering a bit. But I think still in that transition period, they considered Russia home. Oh, yeah. And he would return home to Russia and to um, to this state that you're talking about. So in his mind... Russia was still him his home, even though he was traveling other places. And let's remember that the 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 nineteen seventeen revolution, Russian Revolution, had not yet happened. Yes. There were stirrings, and there was a lot of political upheaval. Now, a lot of social upheaval starting to happen in Russia, but it was still czarist Russia. Yeah. And for Rachmaninoff, this was his home. Yes. Another very popular work that's played quite a lot is his Second Symphony around this time as well. This one. Thankfully, he wrote another symphony. It didn't leave it at his first, which didn't do so well. This one, I think the orchestration is a little bit cleaner. It's a little more buttoned up. And we get one of his most beautiful and beloved melodies, long, drawn-out melodies in the third movement, the clarinet. It is just, it stretches, and it goes on and on and on. sure does. And that uh, shows us the, the talent that Rachmaninoff had for writing melodies. But also we see him now, uh, as you say, with different orchestration in his Symphony Number no. 2 than his Symphony Number no. 1. Symphony Number no. 1, very exciting. And as you say, it had a lot of nice textures. Symphony Number no. 2 now, which was composed 12 years after Symphony Number no. 1, a little bit more polished now. We can see a little bit more polish. Um, as I say before, there's a little bit of a transparency, I think, to, to Rachmaninoff's orchestral writing. I never find it heavy yes, or, you know, or thickly textured in any mm-hmm. way. But there's a transparency and a beauty, and he lets the melody shine through. And he's become a master orchestrator at this point. Yes, I love it. He goes on, at this point, in 1909, his first tour of the United States, and he takes with him a new piano concerto, his third one. He's in Massachusetts. He goes down to New York City. He premieres that piano concerto. It's a big success. Even the following year, doing it again, doing it again with the New York Symphony, with Gustav Mahler conducting. I can't imagine that, sitting in the audience, Mahler's conducting. It's the, um, you know, the precursor of the New York Philharmonic, and Rachmaninoff is playing one of his piano concertos. 
Can you imagine the, the evolution that, that Rachmaninoff has, has taken here from someone who was very insecure and for years, for three years, couldn't write and was depressed and all? Now he comes up with, say, for example, Symphony Number no. 2, which was a great success for him, and it shows a, a polish and a mastery of orchestration. Then he comes up with the Piano Concerto Number no. 3, which is a wonderful masterpiece, and everybody acknowledges that it was. Can you imagine the boost to his confidence? Now he realizes that that he is, at his heart, a composer, and that's where he will, will, will make his name. He's a great pianist, too, but he had it inside of him, these ideas that he wanted to put out on pen and paper. Now, you're a pianist, of course. What about his third piano concerto, maybe his most performed one, what about it for you is just so great? I've never played it, but I can probably sum it up in one word. Mm-hmm. Fear. Fear? Yeah. It is so difficult and uh. so demanding, and even just looking at the score is just is, uh, is, is miraculous. You know, he wrote it for uh, for the pianist Josef Hoffmann, who was a, a friend of Rachmaninoff's, and Rachmaninoff didn't uh, Hoffmann didn't play it. Uh, he, he said it wasn't for him. Gary Grafman, who is a pianist and a teacher in our lifetime, I think had a wonderful quote about the piano concerto number no. three of Rachmaninoff. Gary Grafman lamented that he had not learned this third piano concerto as a student when he was, quote, still too young to know fear. Ah, oh, wow. It's a difficult work, uh, it's, and it's a, but it's an exciting work, and it's um, a varied work. Um, Rachmaninoff continues with his talent of writing wonderful melodies that are in here, moving melodies that just sweep you away, and yet he can weave them in with very dramatic moments with large chordal segments and still keep the melody going. It's a, a varied tapestry of a work, I would say. After this very successful tour, he goes back to Russia. He takes this great position. He's vice president of the Imperial Russian Music Society. He becomes a conductor of the Philharmonic Society of Moscow, I think it's called. But he quits two years after that. Again, he kind of moves from one thing to the next. He goes to Switzerland to compose. And it's just, I mean, he, I think he's just on a high coming back from that United States tour. And we'll get to next what I think we can call part two of Rachmaninoff's career. That's right after this. Let's take a quick break. Classical Breakdown is made possible by Classical WETA. Join us for the music anytime, day or night. To listen live, just go to our website, classicalweta.org, or download our app. It's free in the App Store. So looking at Rachmaninoff's career now, I think of it kind of as part two, kind of a reset, because we get in 1917 this revolution, which was also violent in Russia. And this was a turning point for Rachmaninoff. I mean, just for instance, that beautiful country estate in Ivanovka, it became occupied by the Revolutionary Party. It was eventually basically mostly destroyed. He wanted to, you know, escape this somehow with his family to to safety. And he kind of found his out, didn't he, through a concert tour in Scandinavia because there were no permits to really leave the country at this time. He wasn't able to do that. But through this tour, he was able to basically say, okay, I'll take my family. We're just going to go on a tour of Scandinavia and come back. But of course, they never came back. You could imagine how devastating this would be for Rachmaninoff and his family. He was born in Russia. He was Russian. He was born during the Russian Empire when people had a lot of patriotism. Um, the Russian Empire, the Tsarist, Tsarist Russia. And now to see these re two revolutions that happened in the year of 1917 that were just 
uh, very upsetting to the whole society of Russia and people not knowing where they were or what what uh, what they had anymore. They did not know if they had security anymore. We saw people whose homes were confiscated, not just Rachmaninoff. Uh, they were confiscated by, by the socialists who were moving in. So he thankfully finds himself an out through this tour. So he leaves Russia, and it seems like pretty quickly word got out. Rachmaninoff is not going to return. He got these very lucrative job offers in the United States, conducting posts with the Boston Symphony, the Cincinnati Symphonies, huge positions, and he turns them down. It's it's amazing. And after this tour, he does, of course, make it to the United States. He's already a rock star. I heard I read that people were crowding wherever the ship comes into port. People were crowding just to see Rachmaninoff and his family come off of this ship. And he found himself quickly able to basically land in New York and then start up a full-time, huge performing career in the United States. He had an, enjoyed an upper-class lifestyle. He had a chauffeur. He had a great apartment. I think the same building where the Gershwins would then also live a few years later. <laughs> um, I mean, he was he really found himself at home in, in New York City. But of course, he missed Russia. I think he said that when he left Russia... He lost his desire to compose. He said, I left my, I left behind my desire to compose. Losing my country, I lost myself also. It was, de- it was devastating for him to, to see Russia in such upheaval. Also, though, he, he wasn't completely um, happy with, with coming to New York. From what I've heard, he said that he thought we were all a little bit too businesslike. There was too much business going on. Oh, yes. You know, yes. He, he wanted to see maybe a little bit more of an arts world. But as you say, eventually he settled in and began to uh, enjoy living in New York and other places in, in um, the United States. He visited San Francisco for a while. Mm-hmm. And he was greeted so well here. People very much appreciated him. And a couple of things. One, he lost his country, but he did everything he could to kind of bring the country to him. He, when he got this, I forget where it was, he had kind of an estate or a nice house, and he hired all Russian employees, the people who are, whatever, cleaning, they're, they're Russian. The cook, they're Russian. Everyone's Russian. They speak Russian. They celebrate holidays, big festivities. It was like a little bit of Russia was brought into his own little world. But this meant, while he's in the United States, he was a performing concert pianist. He was touring. And knowing his discipline that we've talked about so far, that's really all he focused on. We only have six more works for the remainder of his life. Over these next 20 years, he's performing over 1,000 concerts. Right, because that was uh, when he had said, as you said, that he left behind his desire to compose when he lost his country of Russia. So with that in mind, he was setting out now to be a concert pianist. And thankfully, although he only wrote six more works, some of them are absolute uh, masterpieces, thinking of his Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini. And later on, we'll hear a bit of the Symphonic Dances, one of the last works that he composed. So he, he finds himself doing very well here in the U.S. He also, in, I think it was 1920, he signs a recording contract. You don't think of recording contracts in 1920, but he did sign one. And we can actually... Listen to a little bit of how Rachmaninoff sounded. Here's a little bit of him playing his own prelude in C-sharp minor. It's 
fascinating to hear Rachmaninoff play his own music. And we sometimes on Classical WETA will play recordings of him that were made in the 20s and in the 40s of his transcriptions of other composers' music. But as you mentioned earlier, John, um, Rachmaninoff had a very large hands. You'd, you'd have to, to play his own music. And he was known for playing very crisply, definition. Mm-hmm. So no blurry sounds with his work. It was very crisp with definition, a lot of finger technique, and that goes back to that early training that he had. So sometimes it's interesting to hear him play his own piano music because it may be a little bit more crisp and a little cleaner and not as maybe... Um, muddy, I mud- think. Yeah, muddy or even legato. Um, Connected. Yes, as we hear other pianists play Rachmaninoff music. We're so used to hearing the other pianists, but they're interpreting it. It's fun to, and it's important to, listen to Rachmaninoff play it the way he heard it. And I think we're just so lucky. Even that recording in 1920, I mean, it's a little rough, but that's so much better than it could be, uh, the recording quality. So I think we're just... That is, it's one of the greatest things we've ever had is recording, I think. So we can hear this legend play his own music. Mm-hmm. The rest of his life is a lot like this. He's performing. He's touring. He has this recording contract. Although he would record, he hated broadcast. Um, unfortunate for us, right? But he did not want any of his concerts live on the radio. So that was sometimes even like a stipulation in a contract for playing with an orchestra. It cannot be broadcast. But during this time now, if we're talking about the 1920s now, going into the 40s, um, you know, he was living in New York, and he liked to visit some of the jazz clubs that were going on in New York City at the time. Again, it's music, and it fascinated him. And it's uh, it's uh, well known that he attended the premiere of uh, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Oh, yes. He enjoyed jazz. He used to listen to Art Tatum, who had a wild technique, very mm-hmm. clean playing of Art Tatum in the 20s, and would also uh, amuse himself a little bit by playing jazz on the piano. So um, Rachmaninoff was getting uh, influenced by, by other things that he was hearing in the United States, such as Gershwin and jazz. And he's hearing all these things. He's taking it all in, but he's keeping it and absorbing it into his music in his own conservative, not, I want to say old school, maybe old school at this point, but in in his own conservative style that he's developed over those years. And just six works left in his his lifetime. The Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini, perhaps one of his most um, famous works, especially in recording. It's so tremendously difficult, this one. Of course, taking a theme of Paganini, who was a virtuoso violinist in his own right. But with this, we also get one of the most beautiful melodies too and like one of the final variations yes the 18th variation he's also at this time this is the 1930s now he is having health problems that's another thing i was surprised about was even before this he had a lot of surgeries you got to be pretty brave. I mean, what else are you going to do, I guess, you know, even in the 1920s uh, to get a surgery? But he had several. And some of his health issues may have affected his mood. So when we talk sometimes about how he was self-critical or would get into to, to blue periods, some of that may be related to the health problems that he was having. Definitely. And 
He did go back to Europe, not Russia, of course, but he did visit back in in Europe and um, perform. He bought a home on Lake Lucerne. You said he loved boats. He got this boat and apparently he would just drive it as fast as possible all day long or or something like that around Lake Lucerne. Yes, with his with his daughters and his grandchildren. That was a wonderful uh, thing for him. He bought a villa there and it's called um, Villa Sinar or Sinar. Uh, the, the name comes from the letters of his first name and his wife's first name and then R for Rachmaninoff right. at the end. I love that. But it was a peaceful time for him. It was, this was a beautiful, tranquil area for him. And that's where he composed his um, Symphony Number no. 3 and the Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini. He loved both. He also loved fast cars. From what I also saw, also loved horses. He had a desire for adrenaline, I think. This continues into the 1940s, early 1940s. His final work, basically, his symphonic dances, one of my favorite works um, in general, but still one of his most performed works today. It is one that seems to encapsulate everything he's done in his life. It has so many elements of from his early time, like this bell kind of sounds in the beginning. Fast rhythm as everyone's playing together on these downbeats in the opening, but I just hear so much in his music from his youth all the way up to now included in this final work. I agree. It's very creative work, very innovative. Um, it's not as conservative as some of his other things. It's not a conservative piano concerto or a sonata or a symphony. This is going back to this almost symphonic poem or a tone poem. In fact, he had intended to be a suite of three dances, and each one of the movements would have a different name. There was going to be noon, twilight, and midnight. But here we also see the use of the Diezere chant that we talked about earlier, that he probably heard growing up while he was a, a child going to the Russian Orthodox services. The Diezeri chant is an old medieval chant that is associated with death. And Rachmaninoff used the Diezeri chant in several of his works, including at the very end, the very last, very end in the symphonic dances. And that's what I mean by he seems to just include so much and do a little more. Like you said, it's not so conservative. He adds the saxophone. This is one of the few works for orchestra that includes a very big excerpt for saxophone. It's a solo in the first movement, that long, beautiful melody, again, that we find here. He's just absolutely mastered it. There's also in the opening of the second movement, this muted brass. Sounds very Rimsky-Korsakov to me. Do you think maybe the use of the saxophone and the muted brass might be an influence of some of the jazz that he was visiting in New York City? Saxophone? I think definitely. It was used in only in a couple of works before this, like Ravel's um, Bolero, but I, I think that may have something to do with it. The muted brass, I'm not so sure, um, but definitely the saxophone, yeah. I think, is in there. I think Miles Davis would, would use a muted trumpet, didn't he, sometimes? Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's so many, there's like a dozen different kinds of mutes for uh, a trumpet, for instance, as well. Mm-hmm. Also, one of my favorite moments in this work is this moment in the final dance where it's got this groove and this drive to it that reminds me, if you've ever seen like Russian men's dance, not ballet, not quite folk, it's something in between. I forget what it is. It's something that they do where these guys are, I mean, they're dancing. I need knee surgery after watching them <laughs> dance and they're flying and floating through the air. This reminds me of that. So that's what I mean. It's just including everything, his Russian heritage, the Diazire saxophone influence from what he's hearing in New York and more. It's just all encapsulated here in a work that he composed, his final one. After this, he had a diagnosis with advanced melanoma and died shortly after. 
at age 69 in March of 1943. But his symphonic dances, as you say, are a culmination of a life of music and encapsulating so many different styles of music that he was hearing from Tchaikovsky, you know, the, the romantic Russian of Tchaikovsky, to what he was doing in his later years, which showed some interesting things with rhythm and maybe even some influences of jazz a little bit. He put this all together. It was sort of an encapsulation in his symphonic dances. And I think it shows a mastery of orchestration. And in the beginning, we mentioned so briefly kind of that trivia question, where was his final concert? It was, I believe, in early 1943, a couple months before his death. His final concert was just a recital, and it was at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. That's just so fascinating, this big Russian composer who is, you know, he's toured the world, he's done everything, and his final recital for presumably the next generation of musicians at this university. Who would have thought that this this man who was born in Russia in 1873 in Tsarist Russia and living on an estate and probably thought his life would be like that for the rest of his life yeah. would end up having a wonderful career in the United States and doing his last recital at the University of Tennessee? I'm sure they brag about that at the university. They have to, right? I mean, <laughs> sure, how could you not? Sure. And the recital, by the way, included uh, Chopin's Piano Sonata Number no. 2, which has a funeral march in it. And we can leave it with this, a little bit of Rachmaninoff playing Chopin, not the one you just mentioned, but this waltz in E-flat. And you can hear the crisp clear articulation of his technique and his playing that. Probably going all the way back to his early studies with that cruel but necessary Sferoff <laughs> instructor at the conservatory. Mm-hmm. Well, that's Rachmaninoff in a nutshell. Of course, there's so much more to this composer. There's a lot of choral music that we didn't quite get into. Uh, some songs. We'll put all that and more on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. But now it's time to read your reviews from Apple Podcasts. So what do we have, Linda? Here's a review from Love KXT, who said informative and entertaining in the title, and then wrote, as a classical music neophyte, this podcast is a gift. My appreciation for music has deepened greatly since subscribing. Thank you so much, Love KXT, for the review and the five stars on Apple Podcasts. And of course, if you've been enjoying Classical Breakdown, leave a review in your podcast app, especially Apple Podcasts. There's more information about this episode on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you want to send an email with any comments or ideas, you can send that to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I think that's all I have for Rachmaninoff, Linda. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you.